Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back again on my whorehead sci-fi geeks and fantasy freaks. This is another episode of the Holiday the 13th podcast, and we're going to get into it. First and foremost, I just want to say happy Memorial Day. Memorial Day. If this, if I stayed on schedule and this episode is out when it's supposed to be on Monday, happy more Memorial Day. Um, you could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with me. I appreciate that. But... So getting seriously though, happy Memorial Day, and I hope everybody's enjoying their weekend. I know I enjoyed my three day weekend. So getting into it, uh, as the title suggests, I know you're gonna ask, why in the world are you talking about this movie? It's like a year old, and I don't think it was really that popular when it came out. I know uh, film goers uh, liked it, but I don't remember too many people talking about it. But a year ago, I didn't have a podcast, so that's pretty much why. No, <laughs> no if ands, or buts about it, so bear with me. That's it. I didn't have a podcast a year ago, and I've been wanting to talk about this movie. And yeah, so here we go. Now, there's two wrongs I wish to rectify with this episode. For one, I don't know how I had well over 10 episodes, and I have not talked about a Tilda Swinton movie. Yeah, I don't know how I've done that. That seems damn near blasphemous. And second, I ain't covered a fantasy movie in totality. I know I spoke of movies with fantasy elements, but I've yet to just talk about a fantasy movie. And yeah, I like that. So it seemed apropos to kill two birds with one stone. So if anybody's ever talked to me for longer than 10 minutes, you know I love Tilda Swinton. I reference her in any way. And I like this movie because it's, it's Tilda at her Tilda Tildiest. That's not a word, but fuck it, it is now. She has it's a subtle role, but I like her her subdued performances. And we have Idris Alba, who after the Losers, the movie The Losers, I became a fan of his. That's not the first movie I've seen of him, uh, of course, but that was the one that put him on my radar. So after that, yeah, I was a fan. And The Losers is an underrated DC Marvel superhero film. However you want to slice it, it's underrated. The Losers, uh, or yeah, Losers, Losers, check that out. And of course, George Miller. What can I say? George Miller has about 11 films. And it's, out of those 11 films, four were Mad, Mad Max films. It's a fifth one on the way. Two were Happy Feet films and uh, two Bay movies. I believe he did the first and the second. But either way, that makes up the bulk of his filmography. So without a lot of variation, he was still able to carve out like the kaleidoscope of a career. Like his uh, each one of his movies, they have familiar elements, but there's, you know, um, yeah, it's all, they're all worth watching. I like the te- technical aspects he employs in his films. No matter how fantastical, how over the top, they all have a layer of authenticity. You know, and I know he works with a lot of the same film crew and shit. So I think that consistency and camaraderie rapport is definitely on display. It, it shows. If you want to go through the whole oeuvre of his movies, of his catalog, as a filmmaker, he's one of my favorites. He's in top 10, so I like to discuss him as a filmmaker. That's another reason I want to do this. As far as today's film, 3,000 Years of Longing. Uh, given the subject matter in itself, I thought it'd just be cool to talk about right now. It's, um, it's escapist art at its finest. I'm an escapist at, it, at its finest. And the movie have tinges, has tinges of like philosophy and psychology. And it's very visually arresting. And I thought it'd be just a nice weekend film to, to delve into. I mean, because I really didn't have no plans of talking about it. But I just rewatched it because I didn't have to go to work this morning. So I watched it late last night. I was like, you know what? I want to talk about this movie. So what I like about it personally, um, 
I like how it has an emphasis on storytelling, uh, stories as a myth, how they endure and overlap through generations, cultures, civilizations, over continents, languages. Uh, throughout antiquity, you have a bunch of different myths or stories or fables, but they're similar without having mingling of the culture or whatnot. You still have the same similar uh, stories. Uh, Gilgamesh depicted a great flood, just like the Bible. You switch out Noah, uh, and in Gilgamesh, the the the, um, the Noah character is called uh, Yenet Pushtum. Well, actually, I guess you'd have to reverse that because Gilgamesh was before the 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 Bible. So yeah, so all these civilizations have the same story. And if you're familiar with CG, the psychologist C.G. Young or Carl Gustav Jung, that was one of the tenets of his whole philosophy. He believed all myths emanate from a collective unconsciousness, uh, dreams and desires, the myths and the fables. They fester inside of us so until we act upon them. Psychoanalysis, that was his thing. And he believed in cultural myths, you know, the shared unconscious and shit like that. So I, th- I think that's dope, you know what I mean? Um, but we're not here to talk about that. So without further ado, if allowed, I would like to... Regale you with the story of 3,000 years of longing and give my thoughts, uh, views, and opinions on it. Now, this might be lengthy. I don't know how long it's going to be, but if it's longer than 35 minutes, which I imagine it's going to be, man, just get comfortable. Uh, So the plot synopsis, as Google would say, while attending a conference in Istanbul, Dr. Alethea Benny happens to encounter on a gin who offers her three wishes to exchange for his freedom. This presents two problems. First, she doubts that he's real. And second, because she's a scholar of story and mythology, she knows all the cautionary tales of wishes gone wrong. The djinn pleads in his case by telling her fantastical stories of his past. Eventually, she's beguiled and makes a wish that surprises them both. So that's how Google going to tell it. But to tell the story in my own words, we do have Tilda Swinton's character, Alethea, and she's an expert in narratology. And Google defines narratology. Uh, narratology examines the ways that narrative structure or perception of both cultural artifacts and world around and the worlds around us. So that's her shit. <clears throat> and her character is described as a solitary creature. That's in her own words. Um... So she's not married. She doesn't really derive a lot of joy outside of her scholarship. Um, and it's said that she was married. This says uh, this comes up uh, later in the story, but it's not really relevant to the story. So I'm just going to tell it now so we know more about her character. Yeah, so she reads all these books, she, but she could never read her husband. And I know how familiar is that. You'll be proficient in one thing, but you don't pay attention to what's closest to her. Uh, but this is where she says she gets joy from. She's okay with being a solitary creature. Um, and, and that's fine. I know that's familiar to a lot of people. So the story itself, <clears throat> that's, this is our character, Alethea. Uh, she, was given a lect- she was given a lecture in Istanbul, and she starts hallucinating. Um, but it's, it's, So she ends up passing out, and her colleagues come to help her. But she explains... You know, she's been doing this her entire life, having these hallucinations, hallucinations, but she hasn't had them in a while. 
And she describes it as they just caught caught her off guard. It's her imagination ambushing her. But um, after the lecture, her and her colleagues they go shopping in Istanbul, and they find she finds the genie's bottle. Um, this is Idris Elba, Idris Elba's character, Jin. It's not a genie. I don't want nobody to motherfucking. I don't want to. It's a Jin. But anyway, they, she goes back to the hotel, and when she's cleaning the bottle, the Jin pops out. You know how that story goes. So he awakes. Uh, it takes him a few minutes to get acclimated to the new world. He uses his powers to learn how to speak English. He touches the TV. He uh, touches the laptop. He touches her phone. So he starts to learn English because they start off speaking. I don't know what it is because it's uh, Aramaic or some shit. And it's not, it's, sometimes it's not subtitles when they speak. So I honestly don't know what language they're speaking. Um, some parts have subtitles, some don't. Um, and I didn't, I set it up. So I don't know. I missed out on some shit. Maybe, maybe I just had the subtitles off because some shit has subtitles, some shit did. But anyway. He learns how to communicate and is a, like a period of adjustment. Um, and she believes this is her imaginary friend coming back. But it doesn't take her long to pretty much entertain the concept that she is talking to a gin. After she figures out, okay, this motherfucker might be real. But you know how the story goes. So he implores her to make her three wishes. But she's a neurotologist. She's skeptical. And... She knows that the gin are the um, obligatory cautionary tales, like mentioned in the synopsis, in all these stories we attach, attach to history. So what I like about this part of the movie is one of the better better scenes, or it's set up, because it's just a dialogue between the two characters. She's a modern-day storyteller, and she's telling or is ingratiated with the stories that the gin lived, so they have some sort of familiarity between them. So she knows when he mentions certain characters. She's like, oh, from this place, from this place. So that's cool, even though they're separated by 3,000 years. Okay, I get it. Uh, but the Jen explains this is his third time waking up. He's been in this bottle. And she's like, how you keep finding yourself in a bottle? And he says, I'm a Jen, but I'm a fool and I like women. He doesn't say it like that. I'm paraphrasing. But pretty much, he just because he's a Jen, he, he still falls for women. And that's his fault that he wants to change. Uh, but he convinces, uh, he wants her to make the wish, but she thinks if she makes the wish, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Or something's going to go wrong for her. She doesn't fully believe the gin is virtuous. But they get to talking, and he mentioned the girl, you know. So she immediately, not immediately, but she asks, who, who was she? She wants to hear the story of this girl and why he was trapped in his bottle. But he has a few stories to tell her. And this is the part I like because most of the movie takes place in the past. It's him telling his story of how he became a gin or how he ended up in this bottle, how he keeps ending up in this bottle and why love keeps steering him wrong. So our, we get into this fairy tale aspects. Um, so his first fairy tale, his first story it's not in fairy tale. This is his story, and unrequited love, of course. And it's with Sheba. Oh, and the actress that played her. Oh my God, I'm gonna fuck up her name too. But it's a uh, Amido Lagum, if I'm saying that right. And yes, it's the same Sheba, Sheba and Solomon from the Bible. And Solomon was played by Nicholas Muad. Um, but he's telling the story of Solomon. And uh, now in the Jen story. Solomon comes to Sheba. I, I I believe originally, or, or how we were told, Sheba went to go woo him. But in this story, he makes a point because he tells her, hey, woman, I, ma'am, I was there. 
so Solomon comes to Wu Sheba, uh, and it's shown he, he possesses magical abilities, and he uses them to win Sheba over. She falls for him. Um, he has a series display. He plays music, but it's a pretty cool scene. He has, like, this guitar, centaur, but uh, the centaur itself has, like, uh, strings on it, a drum on it, but it starts playing. The, the instrument kind of comes alive, so while he's plucking the strings, the another part is plucking on the higher notes. It's, it's pretty cool. Anyway, needless to say, Sheba was impressed. Um, now, in the story, it describes that the Jin and Sheba are from the same ilk. They're the same uh, species, and they have, they're born with the blades of hair on their legs. So when Sheba falls for Solomon, she begins to remove the hair from her legs. And this is when the Jin realizes, damn, he lost her. But he explains to her, you know, you were, you were beautiful the day you were born, all it is. And she kind of relents to the Jin. So she gives Solomon three tests to prove that she loves him. Of course, she passes them all. Sheba falls in love with Solomon. But Solomon is aware of the Jin. So he's the one that traps the djinn in the bottle for the first time. And the djinn, Solomon knows that Sheba is the djinn's greatest heart, heart's desire. So part of his curse is he has to grant people their heart's desire because his sin was wanting his heart's desire, which was Sheba. And the cold hook about it all is Sheba knew, and the djinn explains it, um, I was nothing to her. I was just a breath in the bottle. So she she sheds a tear, but Solomon tosses him into the ocean, or he tosses him to an eagle, and the eagle carries him out to the ocean. This is a pretty cool scene. I I do like all the effects in the movie. They they look pretty good. I know George Miller is known for using practical effects, uh, but he he knows how to implement the CGI very well. So the Jen is in the bottom of the ocean for two thousand years, and it's second story takes place in the Ottoman Empire. Now, he's found by a servant girl named Golton. Now, Golton works in the palace where she's in love with the prince. So, reverse Aladdin. So, she wishes to gain the uh, prince's favor and for the prince to fall in love with her. And, of course, the djinn does his thing and it becomes true. Now, the second wish is she wishes to become pregnant by the uh, prince because she feels she may uh, her position may be in power. She feels for fears for her life, so to speak. So she's like, if I'm pregnant, won't won't nothing happen to me. But when she becomes pregnant, it goes to her head. So she's flaunting it because she knows it's the prince's baby. Anybody know anything about how shit was done back in the day? Uh, that don't really mean much. So she pissed off a bunch of people and it causes strife. Now the prince and uh, Golton lives are uh, both their lives are in danger, and the Jin wants to help her because um, he actually not he doesn't fall in love with Golton, but he wants to protect it. Like they've been friends, he's been spying on people to let her know, hey, these motherfuckers are trying to kill you. But he wants her to wish her herself free so she can get away. But before she makes her last wish, she's killed. And since she never made her last wish, the djinn is still, um, he's still in that contract with her. So he pretty much is uh, trapped in limbo at this point. He's in this palace. He's returned to his jar. And when when 
Golton found the gin in his palace. She hid him under a stone. That way nobody can find him. So when he, when she's killed, he returns to this stone. And he's trapped under this stone. I don't know how many years. He's under there for a long time, but he's in the same place. Because uh, the next part of the story is in the same palace. <clears throat> so he's alive. He's aware of people around him, but he can't interact with anybody. So he can pretty much travel anywhere he wants to go. Now, it's said that people have... Um, uh, they're predisposed to sensing his powers or abilities, people that have powers and abilities themselves. So if he's uh, if he's around someone that can sense his presence, he'll try to guide them towards him, you know, to, to get him to the lamp. Uh, and one day, the is these two princes. Uh, now, one of the princes is shown to have these abilities, so the djinn uses his powers to draw the prince towards him, you know, to find the bottle, but he's just a he's a young child and he can't lift the heavy stone. They're able to move it a little bit, which kind of is is fucked up because it plays on the on the gin because he was like I was almost free, but the the two brothers' mother find them and take them away so the gin is still trapped. Now he's not even evolved. Uh, I'm sorry, not evolved, but he's not involved with this story at all. He's just watching it um, because he's still trapped under this stone. And so the brother that has the mystical abilities, he becomes a warlord, kind of. So he's good in battle and he becomes bloodthirsty. And so that's all the fuck he want to do. And he becomes a tyrant, so to speak. So his mother is afraid that he she there would there be no heirs. So she locks the other brother. And I think he's supposed to be dim-witted. I don't know if he's dim-witted or just spoiled like he's supposed to be a man-child or something. But she basically locks him in a room, a pleasure room, where it's just him and a bunch of women. Um, now, he's uh, he has proclivities towards the corpulent women. And the only reason I mention that, because the story the, is, is integral to the story. So the prince is locked in this room with all these women for pretty much the duration of his life until his brother, who was at the end of his life, and he's pretty much going crazy and he killed all these people who can't find happiness and he just drinks he had one friend in his life and after his friend dies nobody wants to talk to the the prince because they believe he's he's gonna be on um uh blood quest so the prince again in in this state the djinn was able to kind of coerce the prince to go to where the bottle is but the prince is too weak at this point. He's literally just been drinking his life away. He can't even lift the open the door to get to the damn stone. So he pretty much dies and the brother has to become Sultan. So he's released from his dungeon. Or not even dungeon, it's a pleasure palace. And all his wives walk around. And the reason why I mentioned that he liked corpulent women, because the, the he believes the bigger the woman is, the 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 more you the more she's in. And the more the universe is inside of her, the more she expands as more life, nature expanding inside of her. So his favorite wife is his biggest wife. And she's in the same room with the djinn. She slips on the stone and breaks the stone that the djinn was under. He's released. But she has mystical powers too, which is why she was attracted to this room. But she believes that the djinn are evil. So she banished him again back to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, so this is the second time. So he was out for a day. 
And now he's back in this damn ocean. But so his his final story, it's probably my favorite story. This is the one about uh Zeref. This the third or just the other person that finds him. And I do like this actress. I never seen her before. She's uh, I don't believe uh, well she's foreign. Her name, and again, excuse me, uh Berger Goldgildar. Uh I liked her as an actress. She was good in the movie. Uh, and it's and again, it's probably my favorite uh, story out of the three. But to tell it, um, Zeref is a foundling, and she's married to an older man, and he already has like several different wives. Now Zeref is the most beautiful. She's the youngest. She's the smartest. But it's 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 shown or described. She doesn't have any manners or anything. Nobody really likes her. Uh, but she's super smart. She's an event. She's an inventor. And one day, the djinn, the, the husband, um, they live in this castle. So one of the servants find a bottle in a, in a fish that was being gutted because the uh, djinn has been at the bottom of the sea. So she finds the bottle or the husband gives her the bottle as a gift. And her being inquisitive, she opens it and finds the djinn. Um... So this is why I think the story is cool because I think out of all of the adventures, the Jin and Surf, they have the most camaraderie between them, or the because he was friends with the other people. He honestly cared and tried to protect them, but it seems like Zeref actually cares for him back, and she confides in him that she doesn't know where her inventions come from. She thinks she might be a witch. She knows if she was a man and she was this smart, she'll be able to explain herself and her and her inventions and go public. But if she does, she might be killed. Like, or won't nobody listen to her? And the Jen describes her as a woman ardent for learning, and he falls in love with that. So she she wishes to just learn more. And the Jen, of course, grants her wish. So he brings her all kind of books and studies and sculptures and shit from all over the world and she's delighted to learn and what's important about this part because it's is he all of course this takes place in the past but it's uh is juxtaposed with alethea listening to it in the present so as we're watching in the past both of the characters of zeref and alethea are taking on some of the same mannerisms it shows Alethea read, I'm sorry, so Zeref read a book, but she does it in the same manner as Alethea did it in the present. So it's kind of showing they, this, uh, they kind of had the same attributes. And Alethea has been shown, I didn't mention that, but she's been shown to have the same mannerisms as the people he describes uh, in the past. So maybe she's an amalgamation of all of them. I don't know. But I'm getting too far ahead. Uh, uh, Let me not digress because i i'm good for that but <clears throat> anyway at this point they pretty much yeah fall in love they and all everything he teaches her he's able to put him in the bottle so nobody finds him so after they read a stack of books uh they take a bottle and he uses his magic and it's pretty much like google so whenever she needs something she goes to the bottle and all of the information is inside of that so they just spend their lives in this room and when she's not there, uh, when she goes to her husband because she's married or when her husband comes to her room or when she has to go perform her wifely duties, so to speak, he, the gym, the gin travels and he comes back and tell, tells her everything he sees. But, of course, she grows. She Now she grows a little disdain. 
because she's in, smart, she's intelligent, but she's still trapped in his house. But <clears throat> and on, the, on the same token, she's having, the more she learns, the more she wants to figure out, but she can't work out certain equations, so it frustrates her because she loves mathematics. So she has theorems she wants to prove, and she don't think she's utilizing all her uh, her brain power. And, you know, she... So she wishes to dream is the djinn do because it's explained that the djinn don't sleep. They dream while they're awake. So he teaches her how to do this. And with doing this, she's able to figure out shit as she dreams, which is visually how they are portrayed is dope. Uh, and that's basically the bedrock of psychoanalysis is studying dreams and shit. So that's what I mean about the movie goes into psychology in a way because you know, dream journaling. I don't know if you do that, but that's supposed to be a way to ascertain the meaning of life through dream and, and desire and shit like that. So I think that's cool. The movie implemented that. So <clears throat> anyway, she's still trapped in this castle. Uh, and eventually, eventually she starts feeling trapped by the djinn because he describes his loving her. He loved her more than he loved his own freedom. So he's pretty much being possessive over her. Uh, what started out as, you know, just that attraction. He doesn't want to leave her side. And Seraph is, you know, shame with all that. But there, it all comes to a head when it's revealed that Seraph and the djinn are expecting a child. So they're arguing over this because the djinn, he starts to sound like a stalker. Not a stalker, but he starts to sound like, he starts to sound crazy. He's like... I put myself back in that bottle just to be close to you. Like, I don't I, I don't care. You know, I know you're married, but I'm going to live forever. Your husband going to die, blah, 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 blah. Uh, he doesn't say that, but he's like, he, he doesn't care. He just wants to be by her side. But they're arguing as he says this, and as he's putting himself into a bottle, she says, I wish I never met you, or I, miss, I wish I didn't, I didn't know who you are. I forget how they word it. I wish we never met, and when the djinn hit, of course he grants her wish, and he goes into the bottle, and she doesn't remember what the bottle, uh, she doesn't remember who he is, so he gets thrown in with the rest of her bottles, and she soon forgets him, and uh, this is the part um, in the story, or this is where the djinn pretty much, this is his lowest point at this point, and so it's the present day, this was his last time being outside the bottle, so now he's he's out again, and Alethea hearing hearing his stories of how he loved these women and his life and his tales and everything he's seen and been through, she wishes for the Jin to love her the same way he loved these other women. Of course, her wish is granted, which which I which I think is a cool concept. If I can segue for a minute, because I think that's a cool way to get to know. Someone not to form an opinion, but in a way of when, because people who really care about you, they don't talk, they talk shit to your face, but they tell the truth behind your back. And that's like a cool way, you know, telling, telling stories on what you know. So she pretty much learned to gen um, at his purest, you know what I mean? That's the point I'm trying to get across. And him describing stories on what he loved, you know, made her be want to be a part of that and it's pretty I, th- I just think that's a pretty cool concept if i'm explaining it right which i'm probably not because my thoughts get jumbled um but anyway 
But in a cool visual display, they consummate their union. And it's just like this weird, ethereal, otherworldly type shit. Again, this uh, George Miller isn't predominantly known for using practical uh, effects, even though he uses CGI like every other film. I don't think there's a film within the last 30 years that don't have some kind of CGI. But it's a cool display. They go, it has like that... um, that Doctor Strange shit, um, any type of multiverse, traversing dimensions, it has that kind of shit. But but it's cool because he's 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 not giant. He's shown to be giant at a point, but he's larger than average. So he's she, he's kind of they're kind of entangled, but he's overshadowing. It's just a cool. It's hard to explain. Watch the movie, which is why I'm telling you this but it, it's a cool effect i should say um so it's plain it, it's explained throughout the movie that the gin his chemical makeup is he's electromagnetic that's why he's, that's how he interacts with it, his environment that's how he learns to speak he touched the tv and got transmissions he touched the cell phone um the laptop and this is how he was able to get um information he's basically just a big transmitter himself this is why he knows so much and can learn so much he comes to realize that now over a period of time is is unspecified um because they've been in istanbul this uh four days now the whole movie takes place well the bulk of the movie takes place in there in um the hotel room because he's telling um out of theater stories But when after she makes a wish for them to fall in love, they go back to London where she lives. And over an unspecified amount of time, his molecular molecular structure starts to break down uh, through all the constant transmitting. It's hurting him because that's what he does. Um, Now, Alethea doesn't want her to leave, but but if he stays, he's basically going to die. She gets to the point and she has to make her second wish to where she finds the djinn and he pretty much turned into stone at some point. So she says, I wish you could speak because uh, he can't speak to her. So the wish is granted and he gains his mobility back and he's able to speak. But it's kind of incomprehensive because he's taking in so much information. He can't fully formulate a thought. But since he's in love with Alethea, he tells her, I'll be here. It doesn't matter. Like, I don't want to leave you. I'll stay so she sees she's pretty much made of a, a prisoner in another way. And she's been a prisoner to it herself. You know what I mean? She she um, she had an imaginary friend, um, which is, um, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but it's, it's mentioned that she had an imaginary friend. So when she first meets the djinn, she believes this is a, um, a re- a re-embodiment of her imaginary friend. Like when she had her hallucinations, that wasn't nothing new for her. But so anyway, she's been guilty of this herself because she's kept herself away from that part of her mind, that expansive part of her mind, which she was so good at as a child. You know what I mean? So meeting this Jen, I believe she felt more like that. I think that's what the movie was trying to convey. Because she even says it at some point. He's like, uh, her colleague says... You're, behave, you're behaving like a child or something. And she says, ah, oh, don't you know I am just a child? So I don't know if that a lot to do with dreams. Uh, I know with delving in psychology, a, a lot of it has to do with childhood and shit. But anyway, <clears throat> another tangent. I, I swear, uh, I promise you we're going to get to the end of this story. Um, 
But then she realizes she has to let the djinn go, and he's literally dying in front of her. So for her final wish, she says, I wish you to be where you belong, wherever it is. Um, and then it he it doesn't really show him disappear, but it shows them embrace for a minute. Um, and I, I assume he just disappears because it, it fades to black. But three years later, it, show, it shows her again. Um, now, when she had her imaginary friend, she used to write him down in um, a book with dream journaling. Uh, but as she got older, she realized this was dumb, so she burned the book. But after this happened with her gin, and she goes on this, you know, journey through his life, and she meets him, and he grants her wishes, and then things like that, she starts to write again. And over this course of three years, she writes the story 3,000 years along, and it's written in the same way she wrote her original book. And it's just, uh, it's illustrations and stories, and it's in a leather-bound book. I don't know if that was supposed to be a nod to the black book. It's a Carl Jung book, and it's pretty much the same thing. Um, I don't know if that was ever published. I know the red book was was pretty much just his thoughts and journals. It's not really a book. It's just shit he was wrote down. It wasn't even published till after he died. But um, it, it's told like that. I know if you... It's a bunch of books that people have found throughout the years that it's in a foreign language uh, and it's illustrations and they can't figure out what it is. Uh, I know it's theories and shit, but it, it looks like one of those, which is pretty cool. So she's in this park. She finishes her book. She closes the pages and she's walking through the park. She feels her gin in the air and it's shown that every three years he comes to hang out with her. And he stays for as long as he can because, you know, he can't stay on earth long. Or he can't stay where it's a bunch of um, devices. He can't be around TVs and smartphones. So where are you going to be in, model de- um, uh, in modern day society that you're not surrounded by devices? So he stays with her for as long as he can. And the movie said always longer than, than he should, but eventually leaves. Now, he still loves her. That that wish hasn't been um, negated upon but he can't physically stay with her. And since her final wish was for him to be where he belonged, he doesn't have to remain there. So before it gets too much for him, he returns where he belongs and he, and then he comes back to her for the rest of her, her life because he's going to live forever. So that's, that's pretty much the end of the story. That's 2,000 years of longing. A crazy-ass love story. Uh, man, I said it was going to be a sci-fi film, but yeah, it's a sign, uh uh, I'm sorry, I said it's gonna be a fantasy film, but it pretty much turned into um when Harry met Sally for, for genies. Ah, for genies. Ah, but anyway. <clears throat> so what I find most enthralling about the film, again, is visually arresting. It's um a dark fantasy, is brimming with the magical mythical elements. Now, some cases, those parts of movies, when they're for an adult audience, they take place, they take backseat to the actual storytelling. Now it's a bunch of movies that have these elements, but when they're introduced, the character can only do them at a specific time. Like they have their abilities, but they can only use them when the, uh, at midnight when the moon is full. So it's kind of like a deus machina. Their, their abilities only come at the end of the, for the story. The, the movie itself is about something totally different. Like this movie, but what I like about this movie is that all the magical elements are put uh, on full display. It doesn't play around with it. Now, it does suggest that maybe this might be taking place in her head, but I don't think that's true. 
Me personally, I didn't get that from the movie, but I know people uh, do theorize that. So if you watch it, um, yeah. What do you think? So I do. So yeah, I love the, uh, the fantasy aspects. I love that, uh, and I love um, like as I'm getting older, being a man of a certain age, I do like the the the, the dichotomy between the two characters. That part was comforting for me because you have this old sage character explaining things then you have in the gin then you have Alethea she's a person of um, science so to speak not that science is her field but she believes you know in what you can see she's she's uh, she's a skeptic she's a cynic you know what I mean and we all have that dualities between us that dichotomy in us and you know being older and realizing shit a little different like uh Movies, be, be, be watching movies from a, a more mature eye, I should say. Uh, I think that was cool. Like, being, oh, I see how we should say that. I see where you can say that. I can understand it more. Like, this really is an adult fairy tale. And I'm not just saying that because it has adult themes. I mean, you can watch this as an adult and de- derive some sorts of, some sort of uh, meaning to, from it and be like, oh, okay. I get it. Like, you know, the stories we're told as, as, as kids. And again, Alethea, she's content with her life, her career. No marriage, no children. But she uh, she finds feelings through stories, which is why she loves to hear stories. Now, that's something, too, that resonated with me. Because I'm like that, too. I, I love hearing stories about things maybe I can't personally experience or haven't experienced. So I don't have no uh, grounds um for an opinion, but I love hearing about it. You know, I love hearing people's stories. I love mo- movies. I love books. Uh, I love shows. I love documentaries. I love hearing stories about things. Whether if I'm proficient in it, well, I don't believe I'm profici- proficient in anything. But if I'm, even if it's something I've heard a thousand times, I just love hearing it. And this is where she derives her pleasure from, too. And I know in, in this age, sometimes that can supplement, you know, marriage and family. That's why I think it resonates with people of this generation you know we've disregarded your traditional sense of family adulthood parenthood uh people around our, uh, our age so taking solace in learning and scholarship is something people do at this age in this generation i think that's cool the movie somewhat tackled that because i'm pretty i know that can own you know because it's based on a book uh, or a short story i should say so uh that's some updated material. Um, the book is uh, um, about 20-something years old, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, maybe 30. Don't quote me on that. I, I should have done my research before I get to talking about it. So both the characters relatable. So let's talk about the Jin, Idris Alba. Now, he did a good job, too. His character is relatable. Not relatable, like I get it, but relatable in a sense of, you know, I can I can understand where you're coming from. Um, he says himself, I'm a Jin, but I'm just a fool. This man has all this power, all this knowledge, but he still follows his desire, which is why that's what got him cursed, following his heart desire. And he's um, doomed to grant people their heart desires, but people are fallible. Thus all the cautionary tales. Every time somebody tries to follow it, they make mistakes. Um, And he doesn't have or doesn't seem to have the foresight to convince them otherwise. Cause again, he's a he's a gem, but he don't know everything. So that's somewhat comforting too. Like you can learn everything, but you can still make mistakes. You can still learn from your mistakes. Um, so I like that too. And 
And I, I think, too, with the, the marriage aspect, parenthood aspect, all that's fascinating to me. Like, just the idea, of course, outside looking in, because I've never been married, I don't have kids, but that concept of covenant between the two people, you're going to traverse life as companions. Uh, to me personally, there's a little more I find more all-encompassing and more engrossing than that. So I like the, the companionship between the Jinn and Alethea because if, if it took 3,000 years, 3,000 years of longing, for you to find somebody to get down on your level like that, then it just took 3,000 years. But all that knowledge accrued, you know, you taught Alethea something. She wrote it in the book. Now you can teach other people. So, so... I like all that, uh, and I like how all the other stories, in some capacity, dealt with love, uh, marriage, uh, children, and all of that. Because that that truly is what shakes us all, and that's what all our stories. That's what every story in life somewhat boils down to, you know, love and life, jokes and journeys. So, I mean, it's it's just a cool feel. I can't go too on too much longer without just repeating myself. But again, these two people were meant to be together. Like you tell these stories. If you're meant to be together, or not this story, but what stories tell us, either you derive the meaning, you're either meant to be together and you will, you're either meant to be together, you're either not meant to be together and it doesn't matter, or you're meant to be together, but it's going to take this to get there, and all this, so on and so forth, however the story goes. So, like in this story, the longing, it wasn't forever, it was just for 3,000 years, it's going to go on, but... They both had love. They both lost it, but they were meant for this moment and this time, and that's cool because if you take that out of any kind of romance and love, just apply it to life. I just think it's a cool lesson, and that's all I could take from it, Um, so I won't continue talking until I start talking in circles. I hope you enjoyed this. Again, happy Memorial Day. Oh, memories. We're supposed to remember shit from Memorial Day. You're supposed to remember those that became or that, that those that came before us. So, bam, I told you I'd tie it in eventually. So, uh, happy Memorial Day. Thank you for tuning in. This has been another episode of the Holiday the 13th Podcast. I've been enjoying my three-day weekend. Um, follow me on Instagram, Holiday the 13th. It's just Holiday the 13th. And everybody be good, speak truth, and make beautiful decisions. Make beautiful choices. I'm up out of here.